Hello and welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Sean Mayhew about acceptance and commitment therapy, otherwise known as ACT. Sean is a contextual behavioural science specialist with a particular interest in process-based therapies. As part of his work, Sean develops AI-informed digital therapy products. Sean gives his understanding of what ACT is, the history behind ACT, how it's held its own in light of the development of CBT, how it works, what relational frame theory is and why it's fundamental to ACT, the importance of values in living in the moment, tips for making change, and even an ACT demo where I take the client's seat. Hope you enjoy. Hi Sean, thanks for joining me today. Hi James, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Uh, very excited to uh, talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, maybe more commonly known as ACT. If you want to get us started, uh, Sean, and, and explain what is acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So, in a way it's kind of tricky because it's, it feels a little bit like fish out of water, right? Because like, I just do this stuff, like, what is ACT? Um, so ACT is a, it's a um, modern, contemporary behavioral approach to helping people with a variety of conditions. So, um, and, that, and that, the evidence base for that is expanding as well. But um, it comes from a, a strong behavior analytic um, tradition. So I'll give you a little bit of history because that will, the context of that will, will make it clearer what it is, I think. So uh, if you think back to what, the 1930s through to the 1950s, there was a really strong emphasis on behavioral approaches to therapy. Uh, or, or uh, at least behavioural research, right? How do you how do you change behaviour? Um, the problem with that was that it discounted a lot of internal experiences we have, so thoughts and feelings they weren't directly observable. And so when the uh, more cognitive approaches came along, they became extremely popular. We now had approaches that could talk about talk about our feelings, talk about our, our, our thoughts. Um, and that morphed into what we know as cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, through the 70s, 80s, 90s. In the background, though, the behavioral tradition kept going, and there was a lot of work done on, from a behavioral perspective, how do you explain thoughts and feelings and a lot of the internal experiences? And a lot of that work um, has turned into, um, or at least been uh, integrated into ACT. And so now we've got a, a more behavioural approach which can address thoughts and feelings and how do we navigate some of these internal experiences. So um, it sits under the, the cognitive behavioural umbrella. It's still a cognitive behavioural uh, based approach to, to helping people. Uh, but it's, it's much more behavioural in its theory um, and it accounts for some of the internal experiences we have from a more behavioural um, perspective rather than more of a, a kind of a, yeah, CBT-based cognitive perspective. When you say it's under that CBT umbrella, I'm guessing it's present-focused, change-focused, maybe goal-orientated, but with uh, much greater emphasis on behaviours. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when CBT was developing as an amalgamation of cognitive and behavioural approaches, was there a reason why the behavioralists kept going? Was there something about it that maybe didn't seem to that they why they might have been pu- more purist in the behavioral approach yeah so i think it was um i mean it's been very strong especially in america from the behavioral analytic tradition especially working with people with autism um or people struggling with um conditions maybe that were more difficult to address through through more kind of verbal means of behavioral change there's a lot of controversy for that it, you know the 
there's a huge amount of problems within that field, but it offered some utility that maybe the more cognitive approaches couldn't. Um, the other thing was um, not, and, and I don't think this is controversial to say, but um, a lot of people in the behavioral traditions weren't convinced by some of the cognitive elements. So people like um, uh, Neil Jacobson, for example, you know, started doing the dismantling studies. So they started saying, well, hang on a minute, if we take away all this cognitive, uh, all the cognitive uh, uh, elements to this approach, and we just have the behavioral, what's the difference? And actually, a lot of the time, they found that the behavioral approaches were doing a lot of the heavy lifting. So the argument then was, why don't we just refine the behavioral approaches? Why don't we just get really good at these bits um, if these are the ones that seem to be doing the heavy lifting? Now, there'll be arguments both ways to that, right? You know, people say, wow, the cognitive stuff offers you know, things that... Um, but yeah, and so there was a very, um, there was a very kind of strong movement with that. Um, and then, so when ACT came on the scenes, there's always controversy in therapy, right? Now, I actually quite, you know, I actually quite kind of like getting into that. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, so when ACT first come on the scenes, people would say, well, there's no evidence to this stuff, right? This is just some new things, like a new kid on the block. There's no evidence. Um, and then the RCT started coming. And they kept coming and they kept coming and they were up to nearly a thousand rcts with an act so the criticism back then was um yeah okay fine this, this thing works but that's just because of cbt this is just and and so the phrase that was used was the emperor's new clothes right this is just the emperor's new clothes this is cbt under different words um and then you know some of the uh change mechanism studies started coming out i said but actually no it's working a little bit different and there's um actually the theory is different what we're trying to do here is a little bit different and it offers a slightly different utility. Um, so it's become more and more uh, mainstream. And um, you know, I, know, I mean, you were chatting a little bit earlier. Um, I think it's becoming pretty popular. It's, uh, so when I first started within, so I, uh, my background is in IAP within the UK. ACT at the time when I started was seen as this sort of, sort of like little adjunct thing you could do, right? It's like, oh, it was this little extra thing you could kind of add in. But I, it's, it's developed rapidly now. Um, and it's uh, so it, it it's uh, kind of backed by a field called the contextual behavioral science field. There's lots of different approaches within that field. There's lots of different um, input from uh, neuro yeah, psychology researchers, evolutionary researchers. Is, is this kind of <laughs> ever-growing monster of a field? And um, some more the, the kind of modern things like uh, process-based therapy is now feeding into it as well. So I think it's just had a kind of natural evolution. Um, yeah, did that answer your question there, James? I feel like I've gone off on a tangent. No, absolutely. And then some, uh, Sean. And it's interesting the way that it has survived and thrived. So in one aspect, because it was maybe more suitable, more be effective for certain populations. And also the cognitive elements weren't as convincing, which I guess comes up as a result of other therapies. You know, um, I was speaking to someone recently about compassion-focused therapy. And that was Paul Gilbert, you know, again, wasn't necessarily convinced Well, in, with some aspects, you know, it's hard to challenge those shame based thoughts or also I'm pretty sure cognitive analytical therapy may be born out of the perceived lack of effectiveness with cognitive interventions. And even in my own practice and from in work in IAP services and services where in shorter periods of time, at least behavioral approaches seem to be really effective. You've got more control over behaviors than our thoughts. You can test your thoughts by changing your behaviours. There's a lot in behaviours whereas yeah. thoughts mightn't offer as much. If we want to kind of get a, talk about how ACT works, 
I appreciate I, I led with one general difficult question to ask. Now I followed up with another general <laughs> difficult question to ask. That's good. Um, yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a tricky question. But um, so, um, act is. There's different ways of seeing act, and there's a, a psychological construct called psychological flexibility, which is you know something we try and target in act. But um, for today, the, 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 this is the way I think about it. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to gain flexibility over our behavior. Can I be who I want to be in the world? Can I um, live my life in a way that is, is to use a, a Russ Harris uh, phrase, Russ Harris is a big uh, act trainer, uh, can I live my life in a, in a way that's richful and meaningful to me? And that's a lot easier said than done because we have a lot of um, contextual and evolutionary pulls on us, things that are maybe uh, trying to take us away from um, you know some of these ways that we, we might choose to live if we if we have free not free will but you know we have free uh, autonomy over our behaviors um, and so what act is trying to do is to create that flexibility for us so I'll give you an example I'll try to make this a little bit more tangible um, let's say um, uh, growing up in in the culture that we do in the Western culture a lot of us tend to have a, a more kind of binary view of emotions than, than maybe what studies would suggest uh, a lot of people in other parts of the world might have. So what I mean by that is this. Um, we grew up with the message that these emotions are good. So happiness, joy, love, excitement, they're good. Fill those ones. Uh, we'll sell, sell you a lot of products to, uh, to help you fill that uh, if you want. Um, but you don't fill these ones, right? You shouldn't feel sad, you shouldn't feel angry. Um, you know, and again, however you choose to language emotions might, might change that. But um, and so we kind of have this binary binary view. Um, and let me give you uh, I'll give you an even more tangible example. So I see this a lot when I I, uh, I drop my my daughter off to school. You'll see a, a little kid there, and you know they're crying their eyes out. They don't want to go into school. It happens at every school, you know, across the world. Uh, I used to be that kid. And, um, you know, the little kid's crying, the super scared, like, oh, you know, I don't want to go in, you know, I, I, uh, oh, I want to stay at home, mommy. And, you know, typically the, you know, the, the, the parent, although well-intentioned, a message you often hear, right, is, um, don't be silly. Are you being silly? No one else is scared. Go on, in you go. And what does that do for that kid, right? He's then going into school. He's got these feelings showing up, this, this anxiety, which he's just told, been told is invalid, he shouldn't be feeling that, no one else feels these emotions, it's silly to feel this emotion, and yet there that emotion is, and he's got to deal with it. And we all grow up with that, we're conditioned to that, feel these emotions, don't feel these ones. And that's a big problem um, if you're trying to uh, you know, live a ritual, meaningful life, because if I've got to do this presentation, but these feelings are showing up, and I don't like these feelings, they're aversive to me, I want to get away from them. Um, and then when you start to think about mental health problems, we kind of nuance this more. Um, you know, imagine somebody with psychosis, right? They're, they're having internal experiences, which maybe as a society we've told them is, is strange or odd and you shouldn't feel these and you shouldn't feel this way, but they're here, I'm experiencing them. This is now massively distressed. Not only am I, am I experiencing what I'm experiencing, I'm now feeling the distress about my experience. So, how does that work? So, could we, or if we could, create some, um, flexibility around that, some openness around that, the, the willingness to feel some of these feelings in service of living my life the way I want to live, that can have a lot of utility. So, so uh, for example, um, somebody doing a presentation, 
Uh, there's, there's, there's lots of studies uh, going different directions with this, but um, one study I've seen is um, the difference between people who are comfortable doing presentations and people who aren't, aren't their levels of anxiety, it's their relationship to the anxiety. So people who are comfortable, they're like, yeah, you know, some anxiety is going to show up if I'm doing this big presentation, it's really important to me. That's fine, no problem at all. They are accepting and open to those, uh, those feelings joining them. Somebody who won't do the presentation uh, are resistant. That, that, that anxiety that shows up is aversive to them. I can't do this presentation unless I can get rid of this anxiety first. So actually being able to open, uh, be open and, and allow ourselves to feel that anxiety creates flexibility in our behavior. Yeah, that's just kind of like a little snippet. I mean, ACT goes in lots of different ways, but... No, I think that does... Uh, what I gather from that, John, is that, as you say, it's trying to create that flexibility with emotion and that maybe we're socially conditioned to a degree to see certain emotions as being good and certain emotions as being bad. And as you say, that's a, bit, a large part of advertising. It makes me think about... Do you ever see the Lego movie? I think there's a song as everything is awesome <laughs> okay. a lot of it is kind of like it's a bit <laughs> of a satire on how we just try and be happy all the time and that's maybe not the best approach and so because well one problem with that is that if we become aversive to negative emotion maybe we can get caught in kind of vicious cycles where we avoid negative emotion and it's impossible because uh, and i'm not sure how much of an overlap there is between buddhism and an act but life is suffering i think is a saying that comes from buddhism and so you got to think that it's part of life and that if you you turn your back on it or you avoid it that it, things will maybe get harder so if you become more flexible with it then maybe that's a better way to approach life i guess maybe that, that i'm not sure is that where the acceptance part of it comes in you know kind of accepting the the difficulties so if, if that's kind of one fundamental aspect of it it's my understanding that another fundamental aspect is relational frame theory and um, i mentioned beforehand that uh, i've had a bit of a hard time Kind of understanding exactly what that is uh, i wonder if you could maybe you've done such a good job of explaining it so far uh, of explaining things so far if you could try and help me get a grasp on what relational frame theory is and why it's so fundamental to act i'm going to do my best it is tricky okay so let me just let me just caveat this for the start before we dive in too much um this is it's super tricky and um Today, I'll, I'll probably give you like a pretty blunt uh, version of it. Um, there are world experts out there who will be able to nuance this much better than I can. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you an experiential reference point for, for um, relational frame theory. So relational frame theory is the, um, it's the contextual behavioral account of language acquisition. So if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, um, the very earliest uh, behaviorist basically said, well, we can't really see language, like we can't see where it comes from inside of you, and it's very hard for us to describe uh, from a behavioral point of view, you know, how language is constructed, how it manifests. Um, as they went, you know, Skinner tried to do it, and he had a, you know, a pretty good go, I think, um, and then obviously it's become more nuanced and more refined over time, and so we, we kind of end up here with relational frame theory. Um, Okay, I'm going to try and give you an experiential reference point rather than me just um, wording at you because uh, I think it would be more useful. This may or may not go well. Let's find out. Let's, let's be <laughs> accepting and open to this experience. I like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so. Um, right, let me get two noises. Let's see. Um, does this come over the microphone? Can you hear that? Can you click on my finger? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I'll do another noise. So, hear that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. That's one. That's two. 
Okay, so red, 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 blue, 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 red, 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 blue, blue, blue. Okay, James, what colour is this? Red. Beautiful. What colour is this? Blue. Okay, beautiful. Okay, so that's completely arbitrary. There's no, this doesn't mean red, and that doesn't mean blue, but you've just made, made that association, right? So red, 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 blue, blue, blue. Okay, uh, right, let's try and, uh, let's try and introduce something else. Uh, are you into football? Do you like... Do you... More of a rugby man. I know a little bit about football, so I might be last in it. Okay, beautiful. Okay, let's go for rugby then. I don't know too much about rugby, so I hope I don't get drunk. Um, okay, beautiful. So, red, 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 blue, blue. Okay, what rugby team is this? Uh, is this uh, is this Wales or Scotland? Wales. Beautiful. Is this uh, Wales or Scotland? Scotland. How did you do that? This has nothing to do with Wales. That has nothing to do with Scotland. So let's just deconstruct what we're doing now. Um, what we're doing is we're, we have a, a frame here, right? And we're, we're relating that to uh, another piece of information. So this is red. And what you've been able to do there is then derive that this means Wells. Purely, I'm assuming, because Wells wear red jerseys, right? This is completely arbitrary. This has nothing to do with Wells, and you've been able to learn that piece of information. So what happens with relational frame theory is um, we, we, we take um, relations between two things, and then we can derive other things without having any experience of them. We can just say, well, and, and this is, you know, this isn't like us verbally doing this. This is kind of, uh, you know, our minds are um, asso associating. So um, this is really, really useful. So let's, let's, let's bring this to life now outside this little, uh, this little exercise. Let's go back 100,000 years. I mean, you were there, wherever we are, on the savannah, in the, you know, whatever, whatever we're up to. Um, what we can now do is we can now um, verbally influence each other's behavior, right? So just like we've done in this example, whereby um, we can get you to, um, to link this with the Wales rugby team and this with the Scotland team. Um, I go down to the, the watering hole on the morning and I get attacked by a lion, right? I crawl away and I come back up. I can say to you, James, don't go down there. I want to have my leg bitten off by this lion. And you can now change your behavior based purely on this, uh, this piece of information. This, you can relate that to the real life thing. You don't have to go and experience it. I mean, that's super useful as humans, right? Um, now that's a very simple level. What starts to happen is through the course of our life is we create these very complex um, frames of reference where, um, or sorry, um, um, relational networks where we start to uh, piece together how the world works and we, we, you know, we develop a whole map of, of who we are, how we function, uh, what life is to us. And sometimes that can become problematic. So let's, let's bring this back clinically. Um, if now I'm relating my sense of self to, 
um, you know, whatever it is, you know, not being good enough, for example. That is a relation. So just like this means wells, um, I mean not good enough. I'm just not good enough as a person. Um, okay, I'm just going to pause there and check in, and then we're going we're gonna to go on a little bit more. But I just want to make sure, all making sense so far, any, any questions about anything we've raised around? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's how we can abstract two ideas and connect them via some form of communication, and then that they become fused almost. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful, absolutely. And it's done through, um, through operants, so through operant conditioning. So this is just a conditioning process, right? So, um, okay, but here's the, here's the real um, important thing for us as behaviorists. It's not just this means that, it's this functions as that. So if you say to somebody with a spider phobia, if you say the word spider, it's not just they, they, you know, they can then link that to an image of a spider, they actually will get a functional response to that. To that. So, so this is just a, a verbal stimulus, right? So um, you say to somebody with a spider phobia spider, and they start to get an aversive response, like, I don't really like you saying this, I want to get away from this. Um, and, um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of therapy, this is really, really important, because if, if our language um, has, fun has a, um, can elicit functional responses in us, um, you know, just, so let's go back to the person with presentation anxiety. Um, just the thought of now doing a presentation, just the thought of doing a presentation can have that um, functional response. So suddenly I start getting very, very anxious. Um, just the, the uh, my boss saying to me, hey, would you be willing to do a, a, a you know, presentation next uh, next Thursday? Oh, I don't know the sound of that. Get the this anxiety starts coming on, I want to get away from this, it's an aversive stimulus to me, just the words, um, and now I spend the next week worrying about it, and, and trying to um, over plan it, and is there a way to get out of it, and I'm now trying to, I'm not doing the presentation, right, I'm just, I literally just have this verbal reference point for it, this verbal relation, again, I'm going to pause again, all still making sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely how, yeah, I guess it can, the words alone can trigger this part of us, and then we can maybe start doing things that maybe aren't so helpful. I mean, that's what I'm gathering the direction it's going in. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely that. Yeah. Um, and so this is, this is very useful for us in clinical practice because this is often what people are bringing. And, you know, often people aren't bringing a, you know, if, if, if you're my therapist and I'm sat in front of you and I'm talking to you about, you know, whatever's, whatever's going on for me, whatever I'm struggling with, Often you're not seeing that problem in the room, right? If I've got a problem with a relationship, like I'm, might be a couple of scheduler, so right. But um, you know, I'm not typically bringing that relationship in, or I'm not bringing the presentation in. I'm bringing my verbal descriptions of it and my functional response. So you can watch me, and as I describe this thing to you, you might see the uh, the, the the evoked response within me, um, and that's what we're working with in the moment with that person. We're not actually working with the situation. We're working with um, uh, the kind of verbal uh, representation of that in the moment. Okay, I'm hoping that's given you some sort of reference point. Uh, it's super new, it's way more nuanced than, than, um, than, than I understand, um, but hopefully that's a reference point to what relational frame theory uh, is. It's a pointer in the direction, hopefully, and um, why, why it's so important for us in, in ACT, because it, it gives that uh, description of, of verbal behavior to us, which we haven't had, you know, not that nuanced anyway in the past within the more kind of behavioral approaches mm, no I, I really get that now sean thanks i think you did a great job of explaining that 
um, so we've got those two fundamental parts of it. So trying to be trying to create flexibility, and um, with maybe emotions and behaviours, and maybe understanding what things mean to us and how that the response that elicits and how we can get maybe stuck in how we respond to it. And um, where do you go from there? So. Um so this is more from a, a kind of act point of view, but there's you know there's different ways of working this course. But um, um, one of the things we we try and do a lot with people is um, something called diffusion or diffusing. So um, it's okay for us to have thoughts, right? We all have thoughts all the time. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of thoughts just pumping through our consciousness. This torrent of thinking, and I'm, I, I use a little metaphor here as a reference. If you imagine our mind is a stream, right? So these thoughts are flowing, flowing, flowing. As long as they keep flowing, you know, things tend to go quite well. The problem is when we hook some of these thoughts out and we, so we call it fusion, right? So you fuse up with it. You're worried and you're ruminating and you're, you're biting on this thought. Um, what is the consequence of, of that on us? Well, you know, typically now, uh, maybe my attention rather than, you know, I've got my, my daughter's like tugging on my, my trouser leg, trying to get, get my attention, show me the, the picture she's done. Uh, in nursery, and rather than kind of really being there and joining her in that moment, I'm a little bit there, but I'm kind of off because I'm fused because I had this argument in work with my colleague, and oh god, next time I, you know, when I see them next time, I'm going to say this and blah blah blah, and so it starts to pull me away from my life. It pulls me out of the moment and away from what's important to me, and there I am again. Um, and so what we're trying to do is, is, is diffuse from that. Can we hold that lightly? Can I recognise in this moment? These are some words joining me. These are some words and images I've noticed and I'm aware my mind is telling me that thought. Um, and we're not, we're not trying to live our life in this, this constant diffused state. It's just if there's moments where it feels more useful for me to hold some of these thoughts, maybe these, these habitual thoughts that are joining me, if there's times when it's, it's more useful to hold them lightly so that I can engage in my life, um, can we have that in our behavioural repertoire? Can I have that as a, a way of um, a way of navigating some of these thoughts? Because that was the one thing I was going to ask: is how do we know when to maybe step back from a thought versus maybe when we need to reflect on a little a little bit more? Because maybe there is something that it is a problem rather than this kind of way of thinking we get caught in. But I think you've answered it: is that this can be when we notice these patterns. I'm doing this thing again. I want to try and step back, kind of maybe like a mindfulness approach, just notice it, step back, but also <clears throat> maybe being mindful of the values part of ACT, well, what is meaningful to me, maybe to spend time with my daughter, um, rather than doing something that just eats into my time. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, and the function of it is a little different. So. Um, Let's say you're there, let, let's pick up that example actually. So let's say you're there and you've gone out with your partner for a, a nice romantic meal. And you're not really there though, right? You're physically there, but you're not connecting with them, taking in the ambience, tasting this food that you're you know, paying lots of money for. You're kind of there, but you're off, you know, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, bloody tax bills coming and oh, geez, I've got to do this and, you know, doing all that thing. Um, that moment that might feel useful to say actually do you know what I'm just going to create a little bit of space I'm just going to hold these thoughts lightly and I'm going to move into this moment I'm going to embrace this moment here in my life so the function of diffusion is different than maybe like a more traditional thought changing approach right which is 
I'm going to change this cognition. And so now whilst I'm there with my partner, I'm still not really there. I'm off saying, no, 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 maybe there's different evidence for this. So the, the function of, of diffusion isn't to change the thought. It's not to challenge it. It's just to hold it lightly enough so I can really step into my life. Um, I'm not trying to control my thoughts. I'm not trying to, I'm not getting in the river, this stream of thinking and trying to stop the flow of my hands. I'm just sat on the side letting it flow on by so that I can, you know, yeah, enjoy, enjoy the meal or whatever you're up to. So yeah, absolutely. It makes me think about, I think it's like a, a running thing with this podcast is that I mention internal family systems in probably every episode. Okay. Um, <laughs> although yeah. I'm not trained in it. I'm reading a few books on it at the moment. Nice. And, um, it makes me think there is an overlap with that. So with internal family systems, you try to be self-led as possible, which is, you know, not letting these parts of us take over. Um, and by sometimes trying to argue with these parts, which may be kind of what cognitive restructuring does or thought challenging does, not all the time, yeah. but that can cause problems. You just kind of get caught in a fight and you want to be step back and uh, just unblend from that part is what it might do. It kind of sounds like that's what you're doing in, um, in ACT. Um, in terms of the value side of things, and that's something I really like. I think it's so useful. Mm. Um, I guess that's kind of where we're, the direction we're moving in. So how do we become more flexible with what emotions we let in? How do we diffuse from those thoughts? And I suppose when we've done that, what are we aiming towards? Because I guess mm. that's uh, one thing I, I quite like about ACT. It's a little bit more directional than CBT, in my training at least. With CBT, it's you know it's kind of you can try and help someone set goals, but you know there's more of an onus on the person. Think well, what changes do you want to make? There's act. It's a little bit more directive. I'm thinking because it focuses on or let's think about your values. What are your values? And um, trying to establish them, take them from being abstract things into concrete things that you can aim at. Um, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Now um, again, another quick caveat. Um, I am very, um, I'm very pragmatic with my approach to values. So, um, as long as something is important, and now, okay, I'm gonna caveat my caveat. Um, if you're doing like academic research and you're writing journal articles, etc., you probably wanna be a little more precise with your definitions. In clinical practice, um, I'm much more interested in uh, the kind of pragmatic realities of it. So, as long as, if something's important to somebody, and it gets their behavior moving in that direction, beautiful, that is fine to me. Whether that is a goal or a task or a value or, you know, well, when does one become another? I really don't care. If something, if something is important to somebody and it's, uh, yeah, it's moving them in, in that direction, we're all good. So I have a slightly, uh, yeah, I've slightly kind of a pragmatic approach to this, but, um, so with values, what we're, what we're asking people is, is really that question, like who do you want to be in the world? What is important to you? Um, and that can be in a very broad sense, and this is typically how people do it in ACT, um, is very broad. Like, who do you want to be in the world? How do you want to live your life? Or it can be very contextual. So um, I use values a lot with people with long-term health conditions. And so if you take somebody with a, um, uh, you know, a lot of chronic pain, for example, um, we can use values very contextually. Like, um, this is a really, really hard moment for you. Right, you're, you're really struggling. It's a difficult moment um, in your life, and you know maybe it's pulled you away from some of the things you used to be able to do. So who do you want to be in this moment? How do you want to meet this tough moment? Like, 
in a year's time when you look back, what qualities would you like you, yourself to or be able to see yourself um, meeting this moment with? And again, we're just looking at you know, what is important to you in this context. So the reason I'm saying that is because sometimes people can see values as um, like a sort of desirable thing, right? Like, what do you want? Like, it becomes very aspirational. Um, whereas, actually, it's really not. It's really about, you know, what's important to you. Classic example of this is, um, you know, if you, if you were to donate a, an organ to your child, right? Um, you're probably not going to want to do that. You're not going to be walking into the surgery, like, excited, and I'm really motivated, and I'm pumped up, and blah. You might be terrified. Um, but you're still willing to do it. It's important to you. Um, and so that's really for me what values values are. It's it's what's important to me in this moment. Who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? Um, again, you know, uh, we're both parents, so um, natural example here. Um, you know, <laughs> when your kid's waking you up at three in the morning for like the fifth night running, um, you, you know, like, are you going to jump out of bed and like, yes, I'm super motivated and, you know, this is my value. No, like, you might be a little cranky and you're pretty tired. But, you know, how do you want to meet that moment? Who do I want to be? Even when I'm tired, even when I'm, uh, you know, a little, a little grumpy, who do I want to be for them in that moment? You know, and I'm, am I willing to step a little bit in that direction if that feels useful? And gosh, that, that brings up so many questions for me, Sean, that may not be answerable. You know, they're quite big that's questions. Good. That's okay. um, um, one is, could people's judgments be clouded in terms of what their values are? You know, what they think they should value rather than what they actually value. We spoke a little bit earlier about how we can be conditioned by things, our, our parents, our friends, culture, to think that we should want to do things a certain way rather than what's actually meaningful um, to us. So that's kind of one, how much can they be kind of be clouded? It also makes me think about, I remember hearing a phrase before I quite like, uh, we don't choose our values, we discover them. It's almost like you have to go do things mm. to find out what is valuable to you. That's nice. Um, and then it also makes me think about, well, like, does that mean that there's a hierarchy of values that some are more meaningful than others? But rather than go through all that, maybe just come back to that first question about how do we try to parse out those values that are truly meaningful to us versus those ones that maybe not so much imposed, but you know we've been conditioned to to think are are truly meaningful to us. Absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and um, again, this is just my perspective on this because some people do um, they do orientate to values in more of a global way. Like you have a value, and then you you go around it. Um, to me, values are contextually controlled. So, what do I mean by that? Um, you go with some new friends to a uh, climate uh, climate crisis rally. Maybe your values in that moment, maybe for a few days after, um, are you know you just notice it feels more important to you, and you know that that changes your behaviour. A little more conscious of what you're doing, and then um, you know a year's time, you're uh, I don't know. <laughs> like a, a car rally with some new friends and you know the cars are whipping around the land you know maybe the your values are a little bit different on that day so I don't um, I don't treat I don't see values as a static thing that they're, they're contextually controlled uh, they will kind of ebb and flow and so and so then to your point um, some of those contextual influences um, might be um, yeah might be influencing your values in a way that 
um, maybe isn't isn't as conducive to living this kind of um, ritual, meaningful life. So um, the types of things for that, you know, upbringing is a big thing, right? You know, you get told as a kid, you know, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Um, and so you're now working with somebody and you're talking about their values and they say, well, I guess I, I should be a nice person. But you'll just see it, right? Like, the, like is that really important? Like, that didn't sound important to you. Um, and so we really want to try and get to the point where, where we as individuals, but also our, our clients, are able to internally navigate. Like, I really love what you said just now. Like, it's already all inside. It's all here. We just got quiet our mind enough to, to hear it. And am I doing these things, which I've labeled my values, um, but actually, like, when I'm doing it, I don't, they're not doing anything for me. I'm doing this thing begrudgingly. Like, what more information do you need, right? Like, this, this really isn't important to you. Um, however, okay, and this is where the, the, another caveat comes in. Um, it might be important in another way. So, you know, um, I don't know, let me give you, <laughs> give you a personal example. Um, taking the recycling out. Like, that's not important to me. That's not important in my behavioral repertoire to me. However, um, maybe having a, uh, you know, a loving, peaceful home environment really is important to me. So we've got we've to gotta see, sometimes we've got to see what's behind what people verbally describe as a value. Um, I see this a lot when I, um, sorry, I'm firing examples out here. I hope this is useful. Um, I, so I used to work a lot with um, uh, doing executive coaching with execs. And, you know, their work is really, really important to them. And, you know, I've got to achieve these goals with that. When you start digging a little bit, um, the real value behind that might be might be something that doesn't look quite congruent, right? Like, what they really want is freedom. Like, I want to get to the point where I'm, I'm successful enough, I'm wealthy enough, I have enough assets, enough resources, that actually I don't have to do this, this work thing, which is what I'm talking about. And when you're asking me about what's important to me, I keep talking about that thing. Actually, what's really important to me is spending time with my kids. And I want to... And so that's, that's kind of in service of another value. And then really what we're doing with people is just laying it out and saying, um, you know, is that working for you? You know, um, sometimes it might and sometimes it's not. It's, you know, actually you want to spend good quality time with your kids. So to get that, your mind has made this deal with you that if you spend less time with your kids now and you, um, you know, you kind of work away your life, um, maybe trade off your health a little bit, um, you know, at some point you'll get that. Does that work? You know, and, and really it's very ex exploratory, right? Like, does that work for you? Or is actually, is if you got caught up in something here where um, actually just spending more time with your kids now might, might you know, be much more valued feel for you. So it's very nuanced and it's very exploratory. And exactly as you said, you know, um, it's not for my mind as the therapist to tell me. Uh, a lot of the time it's not for their mind to tell them because their mind is telling them a lot of these, you know, shoulds and rules and a lot of these other things. Um, let's go and find out, you know, is this working for you? If it is, amazing, keep going. If it's not, can we start to change things a little bit? Can we explore this? Can we find out, you know, what makes you feel alive? What makes you feel uh, or live this ritual, meaningful life? So really going with what resonates with you on, on, a, on the deepest level, what really strikes a chord that feels meaningful, maybe nourishing. I think maybe we've discovered a lot of that over the past two years as we've changed to work from home and there's been... Uh, real cultural shift with that being maybe the new norm because people like no, life is more meaningful more valuable when I do this 
Yeah, which exactly. makes me think think about is does that mean there's a hierarchy of values? You know, if you're to look at patterns, that some things seem more valuable than others. Uh, so again, there's some people that would say there is that there's there's kind of primary reinforcers, the secondary reinforcers. Um, I look at it very contextually in the sense of um, there will probably be things that are more important to you in one moment, and then in another moment that thing won't be so important, and something else will be. Um, and can we can we maintain the flexibility? Um, of that, can we be um, sensitive to the context we're in, um, rather than um, my values turning into some sort of like rule governed uh, way of functioning? So yeah, I'll throw another example because I like examples. Um, um, let's say you know one thing I value in myself is to be a um, I don't know like a humorous, fun guy, right? Let's say that was like a value for me, like a you know level of identity. That's something I who I really want to be in the world. Um, and you phone me up as a friend and you're, you know, you're in tears, you're really distressed. And now I start joking and like, I've lacked flexibility there, right? That, that value isn't serving me because I'm not being sensitive to the context. So um, I would say from my point of view, um, it's not so much of a hierarchy of values, it's a flexibility of values. It's can our values serve us in a way that's flexible to meet the needs of the context. So is a large part of the therapy, I, I guess the start of it is maybe kind of understanding what, like what we spoke about today. And would that mean maybe after that comes focusing on changes, like trying to make behavioral change? So things that you might be doing, planning those things in, is that right? Yeah, absolutely that. So um, ultimately uh, the, 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 the ACT approach is about getting people out, living their life, doing the things they want to be doing. Um, and the therapy is just a, a mechanism for that, really. Um, so, if you know, again, if you're if you're my therapist and we turn up and we you know have a really good conversation and you know, we get into things, we reflect on things, but actually that doesn't carry over. No change happens in in the way in which I'm functioning or in my life. You know, how useful is it really? You know, it's enjoyable. You know, the useful in the moment, but that needs to carry over. We we want to see um, changes in people's ability to function, changes in people's um, ability to to meet tough moments in our life or embrace you know embrace enjoyable moments. So we really all this stuff is in service of um, yeah increasing your behavioural repertoire, getting out, living life, you know, being who you want to be in the world. Oh, I know. that's what I really like, and I really believe that that is such a core part of the therapies that I offer. At least CBT being a large part of that. Um, how can you help people? Become, I guess become their own therapist is a bit of a trope with CBT but it's not too far off that because if you know what is meaningful for you and you can do that enough to be like gosh this is what life is like when I do this then it becomes part of who you are it's hard to go back just as much as it would be hard to go back to working if you have that option um, to be working five days a week away from home when it kind of becomes integrated as part of you and have you got any behavioural tips uh, Sean because it's hard to make change you know I work with people who want to make changes and they can find it hard even when the motivation is there. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing is just starting, starting where you started, right? recognize that it's, it's pretty difficult. There's a lot of, um, you know, each of us have got, you know, what is it, five billion years worth of evolution sat between our ears, right? That maybe doesn't want to, you know, do some of these things that we want to do. Um, and so just, yeah, just, just starting a place of recognition is, is pretty tricky to, to make some of these changes. Um, I'm, I really like just, what's the smallest thing? 
like the smallest thing you can do um, and make it even smaller. Let's just get some movement. Let's just get a little move towards um, um, you know whatever change it is you're trying to you're trying to make. And um, have you got an example, James? Maybe we can make this more tangible. Uh, you can you can like real play this or role play it or just a little thing. Maybe you're trying to. Um, yeah, I think maybe through the winter months. I kind of like to go running every now and again, but I usually stop because it gets too dark and too cold, and it's it's hard to get back into it. So I'm like, oh, I could not be bothered. Yes. <laughs> Would that be maybe an example? That's a great example. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, beautiful. And um, what stops you from 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 doing that? Is there specific things that maybe show up in terms of thoughts or feelings or sensations? Anything that is a barrier? Would you say? Maybe not feeling too motivated to do it. I mean, it being dark, I like to do it in the morning. It's a bit dark and a bit cold at the moment. But I think the big thing is, yeah, just not being motivated at the moment. Maybe time, not not as much time as I might have, I want to have. Beautiful. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gone running um, and not felt motivated? Have you ever, have you ever been able to do that behavior, even if some of these, these feelings or, or, or thoughts have shown up? Yeah, I think it's a fair, there's a fair bit of, Lack of motivation every time I go running to start oh, with, at least even even right throughout. <laughs> beautiful. Okay, I love that. Okay, so um, and I'm the same, by the way. <laughs> you know, when I when I try to do things, uh, similar things show up for me. Um, and what would the running be in service of? Like, what is it about running that's important to you enough to do it, even if you know you got to you got to do it sometimes when you're not feeling too motivated. Um, I know it helps me in a lot of ways, clears my mind, gives me more energy, sleep better, <clears throat> my diet's better. I guess I'm more productive, I usually like to listen to things while I do it, so that maybe I wouldn't do if I was just lying in bed. Hmm. Beautiful. And so, um, let me ask you this, um, what would you have to do in order to be able to go running, um, you know, so that you um, are able to clear your head? get up, start your day, listen to things that are important to you, what would you have to do to do that, even if it meant uh, doing it whilst you know, feeling some of this, this kind of, uh, what we're, what we're, what we're verbalising is lack of motivation. What would you have to do to do that, even if that showed up with, for you? Um, I probably need, maybe need to make it a little bit easier, maybe in the morning time, maybe that's too hard at the moment. Maybe on the weekend or the evening time, if it's a nice day, that might make it a bit easier. Beautiful. And if you were to do it, but actually it felt too hard, is there anything you could do that, even if it wasn't to go for a full run, would still be a step in that direction? Maybe I might do like a, a half a run. Maybe try and do it with someone else. It's always a bit easier if I can do it with someone else. Beautiful. Okay, I'll do it like that. And so I just want to make an invitation to you. Would you be willing to to try that, at least move towards that this week in service of what was important to you about going around? Um, I guess I could try and uh, sculpt out some time. Let me just, let me just, uh, let me just try and get, get a little more commitment on that. I think, well, sort of, um, when would you, when would you do it? When would be the time that would be most easier, easy for you that you could kind of schedule in? Um, Saturday mornings is probably probably the best time. I get a bit more free time then. Kids are having a nap or watching TV. Yeah, Saturday morning is probably a good time to do it. Beautiful. And as you think about that now, doing it, anything showing up for you? Any little voices saying, no, I'm not doing that? Or any feeling showing up? It actually feels kind of 
more hopeful than any kind of negative voices. I mean, there's parts of me think, oh, well, this could come up. But it's uh, maybe more a positive feeling than negative. Interesting. Beautiful. Okay, so we've just done like a, a three-minute act session for you. I can <laughs> condense it down. Um, but, um, so you can see some of the things we would start to, 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 to go for there, right? You know, just holding some of these things a little bit more lightly. Would you be willing to do the behavior anyway? What's important to you about doing the behavior? You know, just kind of like a mini cycle of that for you. Um, the key thing for me is um, just what, what's going to make it easier. And let's make it easier and easier. Because we want to get... We, we need to, to move beyond inertia, so we need to get some movement. And you'll notice this, you know, you watch a lot of act therapists with their language, you know, the way they, they um, the way they language things in sessions is all about, you know, would you be willing to, it's all about movement, right? Let's get things moving. Would you be willing to move towards that this week as we go on this journey together? Um, you know, so it's all about this idea of movement, movement, movement. Um, beautiful. Anyway, hopefully that was a little signpost to... Uh, no, absolutely, and it's something I really believe in. The first step is the is the hardest, and there's always maybe an option to scale things down. It could always be that little bit easier. That's what you're aiming for, that approximate zone of growth. Um, whether it's facing fears or making changes, there'll be some way to manipulate that to make it that little bit easier, while also thinking about why would it be important to you, and making it specific. The more abstract something is, or the opposite to that, the more concrete something is, I think the more likely we are to do it. So, yeah, no, that's... Uh, uh, I can see there's a real overlap with elements of CBT there as well. That is all we have time for, uh, Sean, um, but I thank you for that. Yeah, that was really helpful. Uh, you've really helped shine a light on some of the areas of ACT I wasn't too sure of, and I feel like I kind of really have a better grasp of it now. And Yeah, I think it's a great therapy. It's very hopeful, you know. We always have that spark in us to make a change, and I guess that's what ACT is aiming at. Like, you can do it. Because I appreciate sometimes things are like so overwhelming and really difficult and you know there, there can be a conversation where oh it's okay take things easy or take a break or it's okay to feel like that but we don't want to to lose the other view that can be you have the ability in, in you you can do it which is so fun so important beautiful thank you for having me on it's been uh, it's been good a quick tip can i give can i give people a quick tip if you want to if you want to develop more into act um get training in act it's amazing how many therapists I speak to and they go, oh, yeah, I'm dabbling with that ACT thing and they've had no training in it. Right? They just like watching a YouTube video. Go and get really good training in ACT. Get supervision in ACT. Get yourself a specialist supervisor um, that is able to supervise your practice. I've had it a lot over the years where you know, I'm in like a, a, a CBT a supervision group um, and look, there's a huge overlap between CBT and ACT. There's a massive, massive overlap. But some of the nuances are slightly different. Go and get specialist uh, ACT supervision. Um, don't get caught in one ACT trainer's um, training cycle. Go and train on different people. It's a huge world. There's really amazing people doing really cool things. Um, go and get a breadth of training. Uh, again, it's very easy to you like find a trainer you like. I just keep training under them, and you get this very kind of narrow view of, of, of anything, right? It's ACT, CBT, you know, EMDR. I know you're into EMDR. It's probably. Uh, the more people you train under, you probably pick up these nuances, right? So just a few tips if people want to get into uh, interact a little bit more. Thanks, Sean. It's appreciated. Um, I'll, I'll see you again. Uh, as I said, thanks for your time today, Sean. That was brilliant. Beautiful. Cheers, James. Thank you.